I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is season two of Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. for her natural hair. That's what one former news anchor says happened to her while working in Jackson, Mississippi. As 15-year-old Deshanti Scott knows, hair can say so much about us. Vanessa Van Dyke's desire to be different has become an issue at her private school. Her look is being called a distraction. It involves hair, specifically the hairstyles of young African-Americans. dreadlocks, twists, afro longer than two inches, and cornrows, which is even misspelled. According to the Van Dykes, Vanessa has one week to tame her mane or she'll be kicked out. People are actually quite surprised that hair discrimination is not illegal. All the way back in 1980s, I think it was, Renee Rogers sued American Airlines for a rule that prohibited her from wearing her hair in braids. The court's ruling against Rogers was a classic instance of something that I've come to call intersectional erasure, because basically she was suing as a black woman. She was basically saying, look, um, this is a convenient way for me to wear my hair. It's not a costly way to wear my hair. I don't have to use a lot of chemicals on my hair. I can still come to work and do my job. But the court basically said, look, um, you can't say that the policy that prohibits you from wearing braids to work is race discrimination because no one can wear braids, white people, black people, no one. And you can't say that it's gender discrimination because neither men nor women can wear braids. In fact, the court even brought up an example of a white woman who wore braids, albeit in a movie. The movie was called Ten. The actor was Bo Derek, and the stylist had come up with this idea to put braids on Bo Derek to make her look exotic. Well, what the court did was to use the fact that a white woman could wear braids to deny that discrimination on the basis of hairstyles was discrimination based on an immutable characteristic. Since anyone could wear braids, then Renee Rogers couldn't claim that the rule against her was racially discriminatory. Now, this is a touchy issue. It falls disproportionately on black women. But it's divided black women, not only from employers, but also it's divided black people from each other and sometimes even within families. Even black scholars have debated whether hair discrimination should be considered race discrimination. So Stanford race scholar Rich Ford recently criticized efforts to protect black women from hair discrimination by claiming that, quote, Many employers may have good reason to restrict some version of these hairstyles. He went on to say that these employers might feel that these natural hairstyles undermine the image that employers want to convey to clients. Now, as a black woman who wears her hair in natural locks in a law school setting, I got to say that I take this one kind of personal. I personally think hair discrimination 
is an expression of racial power. It's one that people see, though, as frivolous, perhaps because it falls heavily on black women. The expense of it, the time that it takes to do it, that's only part of the story. The actual physical damage to black hair, the hair loss from the chemicals, from the tension, all of this has been disregarded in the public debate about hair discrimination for far too long. So the beat goes on. In the almost 40 years since Renee Rogers lost her right to wear her hair naturally at work, little has changed. Students, journalists, corporate executives around the country have all been targeted by institutional efforts to tame our natural hair. But the equation might finally be changing and black women are leading the way. California State Senator Holly Mitchell introduced the first law to associate hair as an extension of one's race, which is legally protected. These legal protections were passed in California as part of the Crown Act, and forward-thinking officials are getting on board. California Governor Gavin Newsom says he's proud to lead the nation by being the first to sign it. But this is just a beginning. Thanks to prevailing interpretations of national anti-discrimination law, most black people do not enjoy the right to exercise their aesthetic choice while being secure in their jobs. In this episode, we'll hear from Brittany Noble Jones, a former news anchor in Jackson, Mississippi, whose boss called her natural hair unprofessional. Then we're delighted to welcome another black woman who rocks natural hair on television. Tracy Ellis Ross joins me for a chat on my imaginary set of girlfriends. We'll share some stories about the personal journey we've both traveled towards loving our natural hair, some family stories about our respective moms and hair, along with thoughts about aesthetic democracy, representation, and Tracy's newest venture, Pattern. So Brittany, start us off with your hair story. What's one of your earliest recollections that there is, shall we say, an issue with our natural hair? Oh, way back in elementary school. Um, I remember braiding my hair. My mom would braid my hair when I was very little. Um, I remember somebody in our church was getting married. My mom looked back at me in the car, and she's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm putting a relaxer in your hair today. And I was in third grade. I remember after I got that relaxer, I felt like I was so beautiful. It was the same year I got my ears pierced. I was brand new in elementary school, let me tell you. I remember being in gym class and seeing the other girls, and their ponytails would bounce up and down as they were running. My hair will never do that. So I knew that there was something, even back then, that made me very, very different. And I wanted so badly to fit in. And so I wore my hair like that, the way that I felt was beautiful in third grade. Um, Till now. (laughs) (laughs) It was my same little rap style that I wore through middle school and high school, through college. And when I got on TV, finally, 
in Tennessee, Jackson, Tennessee, mm-hmm. I realized that I couldn't just keep putting heat in my hair every day. Yeah. Like, I yeah. wasn't going to have any hair. I wasn't yeah. going to have a job on TV. Yeah. So yeah. I had to figure something out quickly. And so my best friend, um, at the time, she was a um, captain of the Rams cheerleading squad. Uh-huh. And so she told me the best hair to go by. And so I weaved it up for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the hairstyle looked just like my natural hair. And it was very, very expensive hair. Yeah. Like the style was like, like it's six or seven hundred dollars. People don't realize. And this you have not to cheap. get it done every, every two and a half, three months. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's no joke. So <laughs> very, very expensive. And her twenty thousand um, dollar salary job just really couldn't afford it. But you you had to make sure your hair was done, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's when I first started wearing um fake hair. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the the beginning of my on air uh, TV career. When I got to um, Flint, Michigan, though, I had been wearing the the weave for about five, six, seven, eight months. For the first time, I'm recognizing my natural hair texture. What was that like? Because I, I can tell you what what it was like when I finally met my hair. Right, right, and, That's and, a thing. and you know, isn't it? <laughs> To be, you know, a full grown adult before you meet a part of you that's been a part of you since you were born. I don't think a lot of people can say that is a common thing that happens to them, except black women, right? It's not that our hair is the problem. The problem is the expectations from the various professional settings that we're in. And that's what goes, that's what puts us in the situation of having to choose between straightening and fake hair and chemicals, all of that stuff. I think a lot of times people don't think, you know, it's the context rather than what grows out of our head. I think people just have no clue. Yeah. And, you know, in all fairness, neither did I. So first, let, let's just set the stage. You you get the job because of cutting-edge journalism. What What's the story right. behind how you even came to? Right. They, they should have known, you know, my... <laughs> my career by then. I mean, I had worked in Arkansas, Tennessee, Flint, Michigan, uh, spent time in Ohio, worked in my hometown, St. Louis, for two contracts. More and more people became frustrated with police about what happened to an 18-year-old boy named Mike from Normandy. I called myself into work to report on the officer-involved shooting death of Mike Brown in Mm -hmm. my Ferguson neighborhood. Covered the story extensively all weekend until they realized it was a story and it became a national news story. So you're cutting edge. You You basically as a journalist of and within the community, we're one of the first to actually recognize that the Mike Brown shooting wasn't just a one-shot story. Oh, I was the only reporter that I saw out there when I was covering the case. So you get hired at a television station in Mississippi. They know that you have an interest in civil rights stories. They know that you have been at the cutting edge in finding these stories. So then walk us through what happened. I'm now the the morning anchor. Good morning, welcome to WJTV 12. I am Brittany Noble Jones. I I had been in TV for so long that I knew that was a game and so I just straightened my hair, kept it moving. So your natural hair doesn't become an issue until you come back from maternity leave. Is that right? Right. I take the, what, five weeks of maternity leave that they gave me and I'm at home and now it's time to go back to work and my hair, I haven't been, I haven't been trying to straighten it or anything. And, 
it's it's really becoming natural at this point and and then I went to my boss I'm like look can I just stop straightening my hair and he's like yeah that's fine so it was about a, a month of me not straightening my hair. And how were you wearing it then? I'm I'm wearing like this big crown braid because my my thought process is that I'm the the reading ambassador for the Jackson Public Schools, and I got little kids watching me in the morning, mm-hmm. and I want them to feel like they can achieve this professional hairstyle too. Mm-hmm. So what's something simple that I could do? So I had these two little crown braids, mm-hmm. and that's how I would wear it. We're talking about story ideas one day, and he said, "Well, the real problem is your hair." <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's now, like, this yeah. is your boss saying this. Mm-hmm. And describe him. Like a um, 40-year-old white man. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he knows a lot about black women's hair. Well, he would say things like, you know, I asked my friend and she said you won't be able to keep it up long. You know, like. <laughs> keep it up long. Yeah, the natural keep- hair. It was like, yeah, I talked to my friend and she said it's going to be very difficult to maintain that hairstyle. Wow. Yeah. So the problem is your hair and the problem meaning the reason why we're not sending you out, the reason why you're not in promos, the, I mean, what is the problem that he's associating with your hair? He just wanted me to look like a beauty queen and get on TV and read the news. Don't try to, you know, tell your own news story. Don't try to bring your own news stories to the read what we're telling you to read and look the part and smile. Mm -hmm. He used to tell me to smile all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So he sits down and he says, okay, the problem is your hair sort of wraps up all of that other stuff into this one. This is the one symbol of how you just are not what we're expecting. Right. It's unprofessional. It's the Mm. equivalent of him wearing a baseball cap to go to the grocery store and that viewers need to see a a beauty queen. Wow. So there's a lot wrapped up there. Yeah. Right. First of all, styling your hair in its natural form is... Like going to the grocery store, not appropriate in a professional setting and definitely not associated with beauty. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was hurtful. My mentors in Jackson, they were like, Brittany, you've got to say something like you've got to file a complaint. You're the breadwinner of your family. You have Mm -hmm. a child now like you have to say something. And Mm -hmm. so that's the only reason that I even had the the guts to turn my boss in. I recorded the conversations with my boss because he would constantly bring me into the office and just like come down on me. And there was nobody else in the in the room to protect me. They finally let me turn in one of the recordings and my boss was gone the next day. Um, But the retaliation against you for doing that, because that was early. That was early in my career at JTV when this happened. Um, I still, you know, had like a year and a half left that I dealt with retaliation. They finally brought in a new news director. Um, I could tell that he was treating me differently because of what had happened with the former news director. And it had just been one crazy day in the newsroom. I was wearing my hair straight. I was wearing my wig. Now I'm, I'm doing the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just a crazy news day. And we got a couple minutes into the show starts. I look at my co-anchor and I'm like, you can't know. That's something we said in the newsroom as a joke. You can't know. I do not feel like putting on this wig. Mm-hmm. And my co-anchor looks at me and he's older. Uh, older white guy and he's like don't do it I'm like Mm -hmm. you for real Mm -hmm. he's like don't do it I'm like okay so I braided my hair up really quick we get on tv and we did the show and I think it was that night I started getting performance reviews for the first time in the system it was like you know you're a two out of five and keep your phone on you and charged at all times and it was it was 
I had never had to review it. My contract was coming up. I'd been there almost three years. And so I started asking the other main anchors if this was happening to them. It wasn't. And that's how the EEOC took my case, because they could prove that on this day I changed my hair. And on that same day I was facing retaliation. I see. And that's how they finally took the case. I see. They told me, the EEOC, after I filed, they were like, "Miss Jones, they're going to fire you. And so sure enough, that next month I was mm. terminated. And what did they say the reason was? So May is a huge rating month for TV. And so it was in May that my grandfather was dying. I had a lot of um, sick days already built up. I had more than enough sick days to go home for a few weeks. Um, but they terminated me for using too many of my accrued sick time. They were trying to get rid of me. Sure. They were trying to get rid of me. So basically what the EOC has been investigating is whether you have a good cause to sue. And so what has their conclusion been? Um, my first uh, charge was how I was treated as a young black mother at the news station. Um, once the Louisiana EEOC got a hold of my case, they suggested that I file a second charge about wrongful termination. Mm -hmm. The last I heard, they reached out to Nexstar and said, this girl is working as a server in New York City. You know, do you want to give her her job back or do you guys want to settle? Mm -hmm. And they said no. Um, and then the EEOC was like, okay, we're done with this. So they have mm -hmm. issued me the right to sue. Mm -hmm. And um, I have 90 days to file a case in court. For me, it wasn't just about hair. Like, if you can't get past my natural hair, and you then think you that can. my look yes. is unprofessional. What grows out of my head is unprofessional. You know, let, let's talk about all of the, the people that look like me in this community. This is a, a predominantly black town. Mm -hmm. And you're telling your one young black anchor that her look is unprofessional. Um, and you're telling her that these stories that she's pitching from a, a black perspective is not news. You know, we, we can't keep doing this. And somebody has to speak up. And I had to finally find the courage in myself to speak out. You, you talk about the stories that they didn't want you to tell and the way they didn't want you to appear while you were telling the stories they did want you to tell, right? right? So it ranges from, we don't want you to look like this. We don't want you to talk about this. We don't want to hear this perspective. Do you see a connection between how they didn't want you to look and what they didn't want you to say? Yeah, there's certainly a, a connection. They had an idea of who they wanted me to be. And um, this young black woman coming to shake stuff up, like, I just need you to come in, fix your hair, get on the desk, read what we tell you to read. <laughs> um, and then you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, he just wanted me to fit into this mold that I just really couldn't because the stories would eat me up at night. What, what were some of the other stories that you wanted to tell that you couldn't? People in the community would ask me, you know, why won't the governor, Governor Bryant, just say that he's related to the murderers of Emmett Till? Really? Is he? What? I mean, let me tell you, I had this, I, you guys remember Hidden Figures? Yeah. When she gets on the board and she just like, I did the whole family tree. Are you kidding me? Like the whole tree, I had connected all of it. And then my boss told me to erase the board. He didn't want anybody walking in. Like We couldn't ask those questions. We couldn't do anything to what they would say, like, quote, unquote, rock the boat. We couldn't have a, a black Santa Claus on TV. We had never named a black anchor team at WJTV ever in our history. You know, it's just we would play a song at the end of the show 
on Fridays, everywhere we go, the South is in our soul. You know, we talk about the Confederate emblem and the state flag. I could go on for days. Like there are so many stories that we could have been sharing. And the thing is, our job is to educate voters. Our job is to provide the information. It's not to be biased. Like this is our community. And we need to have ourselves represented so that we can better understand ourselves and so that we can make better decisions for our community, period, for our kids, period. And if we're not telling people stuff that we need to know, in my opinion, that's criminal. And you mentioned earlier one of the things that went through your head when you were asked to change your hair was that there were kids who were watching you. There was your own son. Um, And you questioned how you could relay a message of being proud of who you are when you were being forced to present yourself as someone different. Yeah. I I really began having those conversations when I was pregnant. And, you know, at that point, I didn't know if I was going to have a boy or girl. And I was like, how am I going to teach my little girl to love her hair? And I don't even love mine. How am I going to, you know, comb her hair? And I don't even know how to comb my own. You know, how am I going to tell her that her hair is beautiful, but I really don't think it's beautiful in myself. And so those were the conversations and those were the thoughts that I was having when I was pregnant. And, you know, when it was time to return to work after um, after maternity leave, that's when I pushed the to rock the boat, I guess, and mm-hmm. to wear my natural hair. I remember having a conversation with my sorority sister who happened to be a main anchor in St. Louis at my station. And she had been at that station for almost 40 years. And um, it was when my boss called me emotional. And, you know, I wouldn't cry in front of him. But when I left his office, like, I'm, I'm, I'm about to cry. And I'm walking out of the newsroom and Robin Smith says, Brittany, Brittany, this is an older black lady. Like, I'm not going to ignore her. But on that day, like, I just had to ignore her. I just kept walking. And then she grabbed me the next day. And she was just like, I'm sorry that I haven't been here for you. And, you know, and I was and I told her, I was like, I thought you guys already fought this fight for me. And then she looked at me and she said, did you think your roots were blonde? And I said, kind of, actually, yeah, I did. She was like, no. You are black. Mm-hmm. You are black. It's fascinating to me because I now encounter students at a point where they are confronting precisely what you are just talking about. Like, we thought this stuff had been handled. And now to come of age and to recognize that, you know, this stuff is still here um, in a big way. And what may be worse now than even then is it that it's completely packaged in colorblind denial. This is not happening. This is not what it looks like it is. And some part of that actually goes back to what media will say about it. There isn't a space where the story gets told coherently, consistently from our perspective about how we're still living in a racialized society. So if we don't have access to media, which is why it's important to have people like you still fighting that fight. If we don't have access to that, the next generation is going to be, your son's going to say to you in 20 years, Ma, I thought you fought this fight. That's going to break my heart. (laughs) My mom filed her own case in St. Louis as a police officer. Ended up suing the city of St. Louis winning, and, and that was the end of her career. She was the highest ranking black female that the city had ever seen. She made it all the way up to lieutenant colonel. Um, They actually had her skip the rank of major and go to lieutenant colonel. But then the people that got skipped filed a lawsuit, as I understand. And then so she had to file one, too. 
um, I guess they were saying it was unfair that she um, skipped the rank and so they demoted her. And um, it was, again, like I was young at the time and all of this was happening. They they finally settled the case when I was a, a sophomore in college. And basically my mom was forced into early retirement at the age of like 52. The last thing that my mom ever wanted was for me to be as outspoken as I am, to not straighten my hair, to, you So know. she kind of took the inside route and and kind of sees you as taking the outside route? I think she's just being quiet now. I think that my mom, I mean, I'm a mother's child, right? I get this from somewhere. You know, she was forced into retirement, right? And so as a woman- So she like, didn't want she what was happened just, to her to happen She was just to you. really, really hurt by what happened. But yeah, she never wanted this for me. Like my grandmother's dying wish was that I straightened my hair back because you know, like when you, we're the, I'm the child of sharecroppers. My grandmother was a sharecropper. My mom lived on the land. Like they've just been trying to make it. I'm the first person in my family to graduate college. You know, they, they put everything that they had into me. And I did the best that I could, but at some point you just gotta speak out. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, thank you so much for your courage, Brittany, and for sharing your story with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Tracy Ellis Ross is an American actress, producer, television host, style icon, and entrepreneur. You know her as Joan Clayton on the long-running series Girlfriends, or as Dr. Rainbow Johnson on the hit television show Blackish, and the new spinoff Mixedish. As a fierce intersectional feminist and strong supporter of natural beauty, Tracy launched Pattern, a natural hair company that specializes in designing products for curly, coily, and tight textured hair types. Tracy, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Intersectionality Matters. I am so happy to be here. I feel like it's a long time coming and uh, it is my honor to be in conversation with you. I'm pinching myself. You have to know that, right? <laughs> I can't say I grew up watching you because um, I was a full, full ass woman when you came on TV. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, my respite to actually watch four black women on TV. I thought the world was actually, you know, turning in an opposite direction from its its usual axis. And that was just that was my time. People knew not to call me. <laughs> you know, don't mess with me. So, you know, Tracy, when a lot of us get together, we have hair stories. Um, sometimes they're trauma stories. Sometimes they're funny stories. But we almost all have stories about when we realized that our hair was kind of different. So can, can I share one and then you give me one? I would love it, actually. <laughs> this is one of my favorite areas to swim in. So let's dive in. Tell me about your hair. Tell me your story. It, it, it's the source of trauma and joy. So um, my trauma, when I was, I guess, about five, six years old, I, I kind of began to realize that when my mom uh, decided to straighten my hair. It was always when my dad had left in the morning. Now, I have to tell you, my mom was not good at it at all. <laughs> so it was sort of like this, 
you know, weekly torture session, but it was a secret. It's like, why is this a secret? And why are you doing this to me? So of course, with the straightened hair thing comes all the rules, including you can't play in the water. Mm -hmm. So I'm like watching all the other little kids jumping through the water. You know, we didn't have pools or anything. We just had those sprinkler systems that we kids thought were toys. System, yep. Yep. So one day my mom had to go on some kind of business meeting or whatever. And she left me home with my dad. And you know how you ask one parent something and they say no. And you go ask the other parent. Yep. So I go ask my dad, dad, can I jump in the water? (laughs) And he said, yeah. And I was like, He's for like, real? Why not? He said, yeah, go ahead. Oh, my God. I was in and out of the water. Like, you know, play till you drop. Then the hair dries. Then you get back in the water again. Hair dries again. I must have been in and out of the water like four or five times over the course of the day. So by the time I go home, you can kind of imagine what's going on mm-hmm. you know, in my hair. And my dad just tells me to go to bed. No comb out, no detangling, nothing. So I get up the next morning. (laughs) And of course, he barely recognizes me, right? Because this thing has grown, you know, over the course of the night into this massive afro. And he decides that he's going to try to comb my hair with one of those small little, you know, those little combs. The mustache comb? Exactly, because his hair was kind of fine. And so he's got me between his legs. He's got his his one arm around me like a chokehold. And he's trying to pull this thing through my hair. And I'm screaming and he's saying, sit still. And my brother is saying, Dad, I don't think that's the way you're supposed to comb her hair. And he says, shut up. I know how to comb hair of my own daughter. And I was like, no, you don't. It was, it was a miserable situation. And he uh, ultimately not only had to learn that I had nappy, kinky hair, Um, But that he had to learn how to deal with my nappy, kinky hair. So it was it was a moment. It was a moment of awakening around like, I don't know, the beauty rituals that black girls and women have to go through that men are kind of clueless about my story. I have so many um, hair stories like and I'm just going to give you like a smattering. Mm -hmm. Um, My childhood Uh, was filled with great joy with my hair and my relationship with my mother and my hair. There was not a lot of shame or judgment or secrecy around um, hair type, texture, um, or any of that. Me and my sisters, when I grew up, it was, uh, I'm the middle child, it was Rhonda Tracy Chudney. So I was right down the middle. We all had different textures of hair. My sister's hair was a little denser, coarser than mine. My hair changed from childhood to teen years. Like it just kind of started to get, um, thicker in its texture and, and all of that. And my younger sister Chudney had sort of curlier hair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a child, I just enjoyed my hair as it was. I didn't really have any, I, I, I see pictures um, and I think, gosh, I was trying to get back to that my whole life. My relationship with my hair that was traumatic and not even traumatic, it was uh, frustrating and uh, required a lot of um, sort of learning how to deal with it. 
uh, happened in my teen years as I started comparing myself to what was in the wallpaper of our lives, yes. what was in media, what was in entertainment, um, what was considered, you know, lovable, sexy, likable, like the, the kind of hair that guys liked and the commercials were saying easy, breezy and beautiful, bouncing and behaving and all these things that my hair didn't necessarily do, hair that like slipped into your face that like, oh my God, I can't tie it up. It just keeps falling over my eyes. <laughs> like that was not my hair. Like you put my hair somewhere and it, it stays, stays there. Like that's what happened. <laughs> Just stayed there. I braided my hair and I had to like bend the braid down so it wouldn't stick out. You know what I mean? Um, but it really, I could and can chronicle my journey of self-acceptance through my journey and my relationship with my hair. Yes. Um, both in how I gained a relationship with myself you know, I started out by trying to get my hair to do something that I thought it was supposed to do. And as a result, ended up beating my hair into submission. It was dyed, fried, like everything that I could have done to it between heat, chemicals, you know, tight ponytails, whatever it was, waking up with a crook in my neck, trying to iron my hair. I tried putting carry lotion in my hair. And Tracy, it's so interesting that, you know, we have in some ways opposing, you know, childhood experiences in the sense that you you were raised in, in a context where you saw all different kind of hair types. You got positive affirmation, you know, within the family about the hair, no secrets. I was raised, you know, getting the whole straightening thing done. But not with Understanding that still the weight of the external imposed images, the, the stories, the way that what happens outside even our own families is more important in shaping how we struggle with coming to terms with our hair than even what happens inside the home. I mean, it, it is a it's particularly powerful statement about the import of culture. Absolutely. And, um, and I think, you know, it's interesting because like, if you even look at the fact that like, my mom is Diana Ross, my mom publicly as an entertainer, um, and as the icon that she is, was wearing her hair in its natural texture. Right. There was natural texture that she was wearing publicly, which by the way, often I ask her about. I'm like, when and how? Because if you look at the landscape she was living in, grateful that she made it. But so that, speaking with that as my mom, I still, as a teenager, was not looking to my mom for what was cool. I don't care if your mom's Diana Ross, Madonna, like Beyonce or whoever. By 13, you are not identifying with your mom as the cool one in the room. You're like, na, 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 na. What's out there? It started as a personal journey for me of like, why are there no products for me? And then when I would find them, they certainly weren't named what they should be named. They were about extra hydration, deep conditioning. And the majority of the products that worked for me were so expensive. And I happen to have a, a job on TV. I know that the salary that I make does not match the general world. <laughs> like, I get, I, like it was out of range. And I was like, this doesn't seem to make sense. As I wrote the brand pitch and discovered that there was a lot of gatekeepers who didn't think that there was any reason that I should make these products. Like, why you? Everyone felt like I needed credibility from somebody else. And what I tried to explain is, listen, the industry has not 
it doesn't have these products. It's an unmet need. And if you meet any black woman or any woman that's wearing her hair naturally, she has become her own best hair expert in her bathroom as her own chemist, her own, you know, creating tinctures and tonics and mixes and using ancient remedies and all these things because the industry has not had products to support that. So I am an expert and I do have things to share. I don't need a salon expert or a stylist because the truth is, those people have not been had not been helpful to me on my journey. Those were whether black, white, pink, yellow, or whatever. Those quote unquote hairstylists were all people that were giving me tools to straighten my hair and to move me into um, a paradigm that I did not believe um, made space for me, and certainly didn't make me feel beautiful. To me, for me, my experience is that the tighter, denser. Um, kinkier textures are the textures that actually made me love my hair. I personally saw so much beauty there. Whether anyone else was seeing it or not, or whether it was celebrated in mainstream or not, that's where I was seeing it. That's where I learned. You fell in love with your hair at a certain point. You learned Absolutely. to love it. I, I remember when I started locking my first you know, couple of months, I still was under the impression that my relationship with my hair was one in which I was meant to control it and it was supposed to obey. Mm. And I think the journey was learning to let it do its thing and love it for the way it was feeling when it got up every day. Right? Oh, Kimberly, and yes. And once I let that go, but it, you know, it's a lot easier said than done because we're raised with the idea, you know, tame that stuff. You know, uh, it looks unkempt if it's looking natural. It doesn't look like, you know, you have your, your act together. And, and I have to say that I've gotten those messages not not always just from less melanated people right a lot mm -hmm. of the people oh, yes, who didn't course. who didn't like it and, and felt uh, somewhat scandalized by it like you're a law professor and you you rocking like hair that's not being combed that was an issue for many people who saw the hair as not a respectable way to represent being whoever you know uh, I'm thought to be so learning to fall in love with it meant rejecting what those other people had to say about it um, and just saying you know the one part about me that I know the least about at this age is my hair so I'm going to get to know this thing that, that I've been with for my whole life and I'm going to learn to love it and that was the journey um, frankly of locking. And I think you know all of us have been indoctrinated with what we've seen um, and there's no way that we we can't not have been. So it takes time to unwind, unpack, and really understand what we've been fed for yeah, so long. Yeah, all this time. Um, and support each other lovingly and gently and kindly and even support ourselves lovingly, gently and kindly in how we come to love our hair. And I always say like loving your hair is the last step. And you know, you said we've been told to tame our hair. Yeah, we've been told to tame ourselves. We've been told to twist ourselves into these knots and these small spaces to fit where we weren't accepted anyway. I had watched my mother growing up um, do her own hair and makeup and 
I saw beauty as an extension of a woman's and a person's agency in how they own their own self. I watched my mom utilize beauty, fashion, makeup, hair stuff as a way to transform herself into different aspects of who she was. And so, and I saw her do it herself. So to me, every person should have access to any one of their favorite selves or different selves in their own bathroom. And to me, beauty is not something that beauty should be democratic. Like everybody should have access to their most beautiful self. Aesthetic democracy. Yes. I can I can I can rock this, I can yes. rock that. And I feel like it's, you know, if you want to choose wigs, if you want to choose weaves, whatever that is, as long as it's a choice and it's not out of you trying to fit yourself into some narrow standard of beauty that is based on patriarchy, racism, sexism, the male gaze, all of these things, but instead is about an act of you empowering your own self self. The space of beauty has been limited around um, an, an avenue to gaining a man and a husband. And I think all of that is garbage. Um, I just think it has nothing to do with it. I think beauty is about um, self. Beauty is about you. Beauty is about a feeling. Beauty is about agency and power. One of the beauties and difficulties of the moment that we're in right now is there's so much friction, so much sharpness. There is real danger and fear for very good reason. But at the same time, it is giving birth to such fertile thought that allows us to break free of paradigms that we have assumed to be fact for so long. This, this year alone on this issue uh, of hair, um, there's yes. new legislation for the first time ever yes. that protects us in wearing our hair um, in the way we want. At the same time, at the same time, to go to the worst of times, there are cases that basically say, you know, it is not race discrimination to fire you for uh, wearing cornrows or dreadlocks. You know, right now in, in federal courts, it's the law of the land. So what this moment might mean, 2019, is a moment when the question of our right of self-determination really came to our own body, you know, our ability, particularly as black women, to present ourselves in the way we want to. And I can be yep. a corporate executive. I can be a television uh, star. I can be a law professor. I can do any of these things and present myself any way I want to. If, if that's something that we can trace to, to this, you know, moment, then um, this conversation is part of it. Uh, pattern is a part of it. And what you've been able to represent for another generation of little black girls is the possibility of seeing themselves, not just in the mirror, but seeing themselves on television and in popular culture. Yes. And for that, I am so grateful to you, Tracy Ellis Ross. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I think it is all of us. I think it is you and your um, knowledge and your ability to uh, language us in the narrative in a way that gives us space um, and that gives us self and others, all of us that are doing it in different ways. Tracy Ellis Ross, you are a national treasure. Thank you so much oh for my spending God. time with us on Intersectionality Matters. 
Oh my God, I that was so hard for me to take in, but I'm just going <laughs> to say thank you. <laughs> Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find us at Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was recorded by Julia Sharp Levine and Susan Villat. Additional support was provided by Zoe Bush, Andrew Sun, Jira Asim, Michael Kramer, and Emmett O'Malley. Special thanks to my guests, Tracy Ellis Ross and Brittany Noble Jones, and to the whole team at Pattern. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.